Hey guys, before we start the show, I just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast. Hey there, my name is Andy, host of the History of Africa podcast. If you like learning about the history of the Asia Pacific, I bet you'd also like learning about the history of the African continent. Our current season is focused on ancient Egypt. If that sounds appealing to you, come check out the History of Africa podcast here on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. Back to you, Craig. You are listening to the Pacific War Channel's podcast. If you wish to see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube. Well, hello there. Welcome to the Pacific War Channel, where we cover the complete Asia-Pacific War from 1937-1945 and all the major events that led up to it. And yet again, I am here with my friend, Justin. I'm being held against my will, as, not allowed to leave, unfortunately. As usual, the economic expert behind some of these historic events and or battles and wars. And we're going to be talking about the last episode that premiered on my channel, being the Taiping Rebellion from 1850 to 1864. Because no one talks about after 1864. Technically, it goes to 71, but it was kind of a, a loose group of bandits at that point, so no one really cares. Meh. So as usual, usually I kind of like to ask, you know, what did he think of the episode, this and that? And this one was kind of exciting and kooky. So what did you think of the overall premise of this one? Well, I mean, uh, we, we have touched on it in previous episodes. Yeah, you know, true. it kind of seems like the Taiping Rebellion is really one of the biggest nails in the coffin for the Qing Dynasty in general. Um, you know, and there's a lot going on in this episode with... Uh, you know, China trying to keep everything together. And the problem is, is that whole dynasty fighting on so many different fronts, not only fighting the Westerners with the opium crisis, fighting the rebellion. So you have a completely fractured uh, society, you know, and on top of that, trying to keep their economics and their exports going. I mean, the, 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 the hull is bound to crack at some point. So I, I think this is where it, it started to leak big time and the ship, began to sink although they did come out you could say victorious oh they won uh, yes but 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 it cost them the the costs were too great it's almost like uh, the old saying you won the battle but you lost the war more or less so it's uh you know we could dive into it a little bit i mean we have uh, some very interesting characters from the rebellion itself oh god who are, uh, apparently the brother of jesus christ hong zhu chan Self-proclaimed brother of Jesus Christ, who is trained to kill demons with a sacred sword. Yeah, you know, I think I met that guy in a dark alley once. Uh, you know, while we were out drinking, but yeah, I think about might it. not have been the same yeah. guy. Not sure. You know, you go out in the back to take a piss, and you're out with you know, at the pub with your friends, and there's just that one guy talking about how they have to defeat the demon that sits upon the dragon throne. Yeah, I remember that guy. Kind of sounds like him, which. Uh, not saying it's directly opium related, but considering the drug <laughs> problems in that country at the time, I wouldn't rule it out. Although the Taipings completely were against the use of opium, and a major part of their cause was to get people off opium. They actually had a, uh, it's hilariously remarked to be almost like a 10-step program to get people who were addicted uh, to opium off of it when they joined the uh, rebellion. And it worked. I think because they would kill you if you uh, were caught using it, though, I'm not sure. Yeah, but uh, like anything, like the Chinese government itself uh, during the opium crisis, it can be strictly outlawed, but that doesn't mean there's not a few people that are, you know, sneaky, sneaky, 
dipping into a few things. You know, before we jump in, perhaps I'll just summarize kind of what the Taiping Rebellion is in like a few minutes, which is really difficult. So, as we said, there was a man named Hong Zhuchan, and he was, like any person in his day, trying to do the imperial examinations to become an official. Because the only way to get into the government and to work in one of these higher positions and make some money and have a good life was to do the imperial exam. Guy failed four times in a row. And the third time he had a nervous breakdown, but the fourth time, allegedly, he went into a coma with a nervous breakdown and then had visions in which a elder brother figure, who was this great person in a golden robe was teaching him a new way of life and that he needed to rid the world which was china for him <clears throat> of its demons and these just happened to be the qing emperor at the time and all the qing court officials hong eventually finds out that this man is jesus christ uh, because hong had just come across a bible at one point and read it loosely and he formed an entire rebellion. And while a lot of people say, yes, this was a Christianized rebellion, in a lot of ways, it was more, you could see it in terms of it, it was a, a class revolt. And you are very, very much in the right mindset to think it was a communist revolution. Because this was a proto-communist rebellion that actually influenced uh, Karl Marx himself and many others later on to form their own rebellions in the name of communism. Hong was super successful. He raised so many troops that the Qing court official, the Qing dynasty had almost no chance of winning. They couldn't catch him in the beginning. The, uh, the Taipings were winning battles left, right, and center. And then the Taipings had the audacity to attack Nanjing, one of the greatest cities in all of the Qing dynasty, and they took it. And once they took it, basically the Qing dynasty was between two tigers. On one side, there, the, there was a second opium war. Britain and France was just absolutely destroying them in the Shanghai region and going close to the capital. And the Taipings had just taken Nanjing. The Nanjings at this point uh, could have took most of their military, moved away from Nanjing, and then just laid a complete siege on the capital, Peking. And they probably would have won and overthrown the Qing dynasty as we know it. However, when Hong and his allies had took Nanjing, it seems like the high life and high class society that they always made fun of was to their liking and they sat down and got nice and fat with their lady friends and their alcohol most likely and they sent a, a little force to go attack the Peking instead of their actual army and uh, it failed they never really sent anything else to Peking they tried to attack Shanghai a few times and they honestly believed the Westerners who were there would help them but by the time the second opium war had come to an end the Westerners were now focused on helping the Qing Dynasty overturn the Taiping forces. So the Taipings in their holdings in Nanjing were fighting amongst themselves and then everyone attacked them and they lost. Well, if we dive in a bit to kind of what led to this, um, Craig mentioned in the episode at the near the beginning actually one of the big issues was rapid population growth at the time. Oh yeah insane population growth and when you have a country that's already i would say where a vast majority of the wealth belongs to a very small percentage of the population which at the time were the merchants yep. they controlled the ports they controlled all import export opium shady deals we went through a lot of that in the previous episodes um so what happens there is you're going to get mass poverty mass famine not enough food 
uh, things like that. And, and it I'm, wasn't helped by the fact that the population boom that we're talking about, they went and I have a report here from 123 million people in 1736 to a whopping 432 million people by 1852, which was accompanied by a catastrophe, which was the overflow of the Hanke River, which destroyed thousands and thousands upon acres of rice paddies. So further the famine, further the poverty. Exactly. So you have crop death. You have crazy, crazy population growth. So what's going to happen? Farms can't keep up. People are starving. People who rely on farming for their source of income are now going broke. And the economy is really struggling. Now, I don't think China was exporting a lot of crops back then. You know, there, were, there wasn't too much food trade going back and forth. But it really, really hurts a, a country's internal economy when this happens. It's the base, the base of any pyramid, particularly back in ancient times, is your agriculture. Almost all revenue comes from some way through agriculture because, you know, you have to think about your internal economy before your external. So even, you know, whatever you're shipping, uh, let's say it's uh, silk production, the silk workers aren't going to be producing silk if they're dead. You know, if they're not getting fed, that's the way it is. Yeah. So, yeah, the economy was being tarnished. And I mean, this is all to say uh, in a normal circumstance, but we all know that the opium trade has not stopped. It's still going. Yeah. And that's one of the things that led for the Taipings to rally so many peasants or poor people to their cause, is that they were promising to abolish the opium crisis, to get rid of a lot of these, uh, we'll call them tainted merchants, or, uh, you know, who were basically pocketing everything and not giving any money to the people. Uh, equitable division of land amongst the population, which very communist but when you're coming from the poor side of that spectrum it actually sounds pretty damn good oh it was a great message you know so this is what led to so many people joining the taiping rebellion so quickly and why it boomed and got so strong so fast i didn't go into it in the episode because there just wasn't enough time but uh, a major factor for the very beginning of the taiping rebellion was the qing dynasty uh which was manchu run had a uh, had a Mandarin court, mind you, but still everything was very Manchu-oriented. And uh, China is not as homogeneous as people um, think uh, in the Western world. There's a diverse amount of different minority groups within China. And a lot of these groups were completely um, held against going into certain offices. They couldn't take the exams. They were being persecuted, more or less. If you look at the Hakka people, which Hong was part of, it's a minority group that still exists today in China. All of these members, and mostly Hakkas, were the founding members of the Taiping Rebellion because they were being persecuted. But alongside them was a little group called the Triads, basically. So all the criminal underground who were Ming supporters, because let's remember the Qing Dynasty had overthrown the Ming Dynasty for the Dragon Throne, there was a lot of people who wanted to see the Mings come back and take that Dragon Throne, and they were going to use the Taiping Rebellion to do so. Hmm. Now, would you say, or would you think... One of the reasons why the Taiping was that were able to take so much ground early on is that the Qing Dynasty sort of underestimated their numbers. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously they were, you know, dealing with the Opium War at the same time and dealing with the Westerners. But they, you know, started off as what you would consider a relatively small population group. But every city they took, their numbers just kept growing and growing yeah. and growing. It's a small incident in which, from the Qing, uh, from their point of view, uh, some person who's preaching a persecuted religion, Christianity, in Gangji province, a smaller place south, uh, southwestern China, just uh, got a rabble together and uh, they, they skirmished away because at the beginning they were pushed away and they ran into the mountains. 
but they came back from the mountains and they attacked another settlement, got more members, attacked another settlement, got more members. And if you actually look at a map right now of how the war went, they literally went in this odd little line all the way to Nanking just recruiting and they never stayed in the same place because they were being chased by the Qing army. I mean, the Qing army was incompetent, mind you, but they were not that incompetent. And the method of kind of a total war, you would attack an area, take everything you had and just keep going, which is very, very Genghis Khan-like, by the way. All the way to Nanking, it worked, it was splendid for them because there was nothing to attack. You would try and go, uh, you get a, like, let's say a Qing official gets a report that certain town or village is being attacked and they would send people over there. Well, they're already gone. They're already on the way to the next one and they're taking the peasants with them because the peasants are absolutely for their cause because it's that or being killed more, more or less. And uh, it, it really, like I said, it came down to when they got to Nanking, I mean, they, they took one of the greatest cities in all of China, they, they sat on their, on their ass. And they decided to finally kind of stake a foothold. They made it the heavenly kingdom and it was their capital, the Taiping capital. And they, they should have just kept going. If they would have marched in Peking, they could have ended the entire thing. Now, I don't have any research to support this, but one theory I've kind of been coming up with or thinking about lately is that there was so much trade going on in Nanking at the time, they probably thought they'd be able to establish their own small economy or start building from there. The issue is that so much of the trade going on there was illicit or illegal, involving drugs and banned substances, etc., that after they sat on it for a while, they probably started realizing that there wasn't so much for them. Because they had banned, uh, you said they banned the usage of a lot of things once they came in. They were really trying to reform not only the government, but the culture itself. Uh, yeah, I do have a list of the edicts of which everything that they banned, because they did have I a... I think it was higher up, actually. But it's, uh, and mind you, a lot of the things that they banned, they did not actually ban. They never got around to it. It's in here somewhere, but... Uh, Pardon he... our audio listeners as we look on our... Oh, there it is. So, the typing edicts forbid prostitution, foot binding, slavery, opium smoking, adultery, good luck with that, gambling, the use of tobacco and alcohol, and they uh, simplified the Chinese language, and they decreed equality between the sexes, which they did somewhat. Um, it's actually, it's rather impressive. There were females fighting for the Taipings. I mentioned it slightly in my episode. It's not as much as you, it's not full-on, you know, Viking women are fighting alongside the men, but there were regiments of women. It was mostly ceremonial, but they did make an effort to try and incorporate women into the military. And the women were the ones digging all the trenches in these wars. So they were doing the hard labor. It was, it was rough times. Hmm. Yeah, so they're they're really trying to to sort of reshape the culture with what you'd think is a bit more of a Western ideal. And if a lot of this was based on what we'll assume is a skewed version of the Bible or or a Western it's described or a Western ideology. It's described as proto Protestant Christianity with a high emphasis on the Old Testament, whatever that would mean to you. Um Hong himself was not actually well-versed in the Bible. He had just written a weird, loosely translated copy of a Protestant Bible. But he had followers around him who were actual... Uh, I don't want to call them Jesuits. They weren't Jesuits, but there were missionaries within China at this time, and a few Protestant ones apparently were around. They were kind of filling Hong with the knowledge he would need to uh, push this. But despite everything he said, and uh, the fact that he was destroying Confucian, like... 
ideas and this and that. Uh, there was a lot of Confucianism in, in, in his edicts, we'll call them. Now let's get into a little bit. I wanted to talk about the Western support for this rebellion. Because seeing as this came from, again, uh, what, what I'd assume is a skewed Western ideology, at first you'd think that the Westerners were on the Taiping side. And seeing as how they came into so much confrontation when first trying to establish trade with the Qing Dynasty, you'd think it would be easier for the Westerners to just help overthrow the Qing Dynasty altogether and establish new trade relations because they basically could have started with a clean slate. Uh, but the thing was, it would it would not have been preferable because, let's remember, the only thing the Taiping successfully did was abolish opium. They were very successful. And when people question this, because it's outstanding to imagine with the rates of opium addicts in China, the reason why we can prove this as a fact is because of their success. The Qing army was so addicted to opium at rates, apparently, there was regiments, like 80% of them were opium addicts. They would just leave their posts, go to dens, not show up. Um, the Taipings were winning this war mostly because they were fighting men who were struggling with addiction. And the Taipings were all recovering opium addicts and or didn't do opium. And uh, like you were saying at the beginning, um, the Western world was paying lip service to the Taipings in the beginning. And I have a little quote here. All romance was on the side of the Taiping rebels, who at the onset were heralded abroad as the liberators of the Chinese people. As one American missionary in Shanghai put it at the time, Americans are too firmly attached to the principles on which their government was founded and has flourished to refuse the sympathy for a heroic people battling against foreign thraldom. While America, who wasn't a big player in this, while Britain and France were paying kind of lip service to the, the plight of the Chinese people and the evils of the Qing uh, emperor and dynasty, let's remember the Second Opium War was concurrent and going on at this time, and it ended during this time. So as soon as that ended and the deals were signed, uh, the Western horses really did not want to deal with the Taipings. They wanted the devil they knew who was willing to allow the opium to go through those harbors and they didn't just allow weapons to go to the Qing dynasty to fight the Taipings, they actively fought the Taipings. Um, Americans all know the name Chinese Gordon, he's one of the most famous people that was part of the ever victorious army group uh, that was formed under Townsend before him, but Townsend unfortunately met his end during one of those fights. Uh, yeah. So Western officers ended up uh, fighting in the battle. They ended up training Chinese forces, and then they made this small little regiment called the Ever Victorious uh, Army, and they completely wrecked the Taipings because they had Colt revolvers and much better weapons. Hmm. Seems to be kind of the story of all these wars and the, the, the yeah. Pacific War in general is an imbalance in, in military power. But uh, So yeah, coming down to it, the Westerners basically said, that their opium trade was at risk. So even though they might be able to make new trade agreements with the Taiping, they couldn't guarantee any imports or exports. And again, needing to satisfy their tea addictions and everything else, they didn't have an option but to stick with that side. Although they did try and play both sides of the fence a little bit. They did, very, for sure. very, very cloak and daggery. But they, they really had no option because otherwise they, they would have no guaranteed export or import, uh, sorry, into China. 
they they had an official in Nanking when uh, the Taipings took it over, and they were speaking to Hong di directly. They had ambassadors talking to him because, of course, like he, he had just said, they had both feet in the door. Because there is always the it looked like the Taipings were going to win this, mind you, and they knew, oh yeah, we have to deal with the Taipings. We're going to have to, and they probably have to start another war. Uh, but you know they were betting on the winner, and the winner won. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, since Justin is fascinated with the economics behind this and i do have to bring up the fact that my parrot just screamed really loudly it's probably picked up by the microphone um the taiping rebellion is actually one of the largest economic revolutions china ever faced and the ramifications of the taiping rebellion are felt to, till today when it comes to the communist party of china in many ways than just communism being born um even through my own research after doing the episode because i was a little bit interested i found out that there's a world of Chinese scholars who have looked at specifically every area that was hit the hardest by Taiping War and how those areas developed. And there was a lot of interesting results. Of which I've found out that it turns out in certain economic theories, when a lot of people die, and in which this case, uh, allegedly 20 to 30 million, or if you ask, Modern day Chinese scholars who are inaccurate, I'm just going to say this, 70 million. Uh, when that many people die in certain areas of the nation, it turns out that there is a great, uh, what do you call it, an implosion in which all their surviving members end up coming to the city, forming more of an urbanization because a lot of this was rural areas. So in southern China, where most of these events happen, and all the pockets where the big battles happen, where they lost so many people, these people came together, formed like a greater urban center, but wages were outstandingly high because, you know, you don't have as many skilled laborers anymore. The people who survived, uh, my God, um, it, it's, it's really weird to say, but if you were the hardest hit city during the Taiping Rebellion, you were most likely the most industrialized by the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it does happen that way because, you know, the whatever labor is happening that money still needs to get divided but rather than being divided over such a massive labor force most of whom i'm going to go ahead and say were incompetent oh yeah now instead this encouraged more skilled laborers to come out people who were specifically trained in that job to be more efficient and this is when you started getting higher wages for a lot of these people there was also um, a strong military aspect to this. So if you were listening to the episode, you would realize that the turning point in the Taiping Rebellion was the Qing Dynasty had completely lost the war. Their imperial armies were, ins they were terrible. They didn't know what they were doing. So the Qing uh, Emperor was forced to allow local warlords to raise up what were basically militias to end up fighting the Taipings. But these armies that rose up were better than the Imperial Army, like the Jiang Army, for example. So when a war ends and you have all these powerful warlords around who have their own technical armies, what happens? They take over provinces, they control the taxation, the rule of government, because the Qing officials aren't allowed to go in there anymore. They can do what they want. And what ended up happening is a lot of areas that were the hardest hit by the Taipings were taken over by these generals from these armies and then they became their, their basically their own countries and they thrived and 
it's called a war like it's called a wearing uh, it's like a warlord states period basically just before the republic of china a lot of these leaders who actually came from the taiping rebellion ended up controlling these areas for years like a long time and uh it's a it's a power vacuum in essence but uh many different provinces ended up becoming much more powerful than other ones and i it's a little weird to say but it's the areas that lost the most people well, it can be very difficult for the Qing Dynasty, who was trying to manage so many things at once, to keep each economic region running smoothly, but also all of them running together under the same ideals. Whereas when you get warlord states, they may not always have the exact same ideas on how to run it properly, and that could cause conflict later on, but it more ensures that each area is thriving individually. And that, as a whole, makes your country a little bit more productive and a little bit better. Oh, I forgot to mention this. The best advantage, if you were a certain warlord that was uh, a great hero and you won, let's say, the greatest of battles, uh, you could actually talk to the, I'll call it the Qing Emperor, but actually at, at the end of this period, it's the Dowager Empress who controls everything, uh, Xixi. Uh, you could ask her for three years off of taxation. And if your area is exempt of tax for three years, you're going to do pretty good. And that's what these areas, that's what ended up happening. So the hardest hit points in southern China, I'm trying to think of like Sushuo. Uh, I, I saw, uh, there was a list I forget for Sushuo did very well after this. Areas in the north that were the powerhouses that had all the industry, they ended up moving south because that's where all the people went. Because of the power vacuum and they brought the industry with them, um, the silkward the silkworm trade actually moved. That was an interesting one. So the whole production of silk and um, clothing wear ended up moving more south to these areas where all the people had died. And they brought the silkworms with them because that was a huge business back then. And yeah, they thrived. So areas that typically were the, the powerhouses ended up switching hands to the other areas where the Taipings used to be. And let's remember, just because the Taipings lost doesn't mean their influence wasn't still there. The greatest philosophers and educators and teachers of the Taipings were still around and they were working alongside the uh, warlords as advisors and such because you had to control the local population that was under your thumb already. And uh, there was a big educational boost under the Taiping Rebellion and it was to their advantage. They had a lot of educated people surprisingly in these areas. So they became uh, powerhouses. And uh, later in history, I mean, you, you will see it because... Uh, Spoiler alert, the, the Qing Dynasty falls apart, and uh, it's mostly because of the warlords in the end. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about the silk trade a little bit, because this being one of, if not China's biggest export at the time, yeah. was huge for their economy. And, you know, we're talking so much about population, not population getting smaller, but mass death, and people becoming more specified in their field, in their, in their work. So the silk production, they decide to move it, mostly because of mass devastation. Uh, were some of the, the silk areas affected by the flood as well? or uh... Yes, um, the silk areas were, I mean, well, they were all over China, but when you're talking, there's kind of a, a north versus south um, idea behind all of this. In the north, there was a lot of, uh, just for instance, there's one place, let me, it's Jiangsu, Jiangsu North um, was a powerhouse when it came to silk trade and other industrialized goods. But after the Taiping Rebellion, it was the south part of Jiangsu that was hit the hardest. And everybody moved from the north to the south. You would see this in most of the big uh, towns, but in regions and provinces of China, 
it was much more apparent and this migration of people it wasn't just people the actual factories and industries would move with them who were just being made now because china was just starting with an industrial revolution at the same time because of the war because they had to create their own rifles and stuff this was a, there was so much going on at this time it's like an explosion all at once and it was a messy one at that but um, factories emerged, and when they were looking for places to build, it ended up being in these southern places that were hit the most by the Taiping Rebellion, because that's where all the people were. That's where things were really starting to roll, and the warlords were pushing the money to do it, and they didn't have to pay taxes for a while either. <laughs> that helps. Well, that's funny, because when you know, you think about one of China's biggest exports... And them having to move a very large part of the operation. Yeah, a bunch of pro 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 Probably hurt them financially in the short term. Yeah. But in the long term, like you said, they became more specialized in what they did. They actually got better at what they're doing. More production per square meter or per person or per laborer, whichever way you want to divide it up. And they actually boomed in silk production after yeah. the Taiping Rebellion, which is very, very impressive. I'm not an economist, but when the first word that came up, and it's an, in economic theory, it's Malthu. Oh my God, Malthus Malthusianism, Malthusianism is what he's trying to pronounce. <laughs> oh, mispronunciation—that's a big one in my show, as anyone who speaks Chinese or Japanese would know, or English for that matter. I apologize on behalf of him. If anybody's but... if anybody's watching from the midway episode with the Sperance thing, like oh my God, I only have two hundred comments about that. But the idea that a lot of people die in a certain area and it forces an urbanization and industrialized kind of revolution of its own, uh, that was, this is the case in point of any, it's an economist dream to study this. And a lot of Chinese scholars have, because I had to go through a few papers just to get a few side notes on this. And uh, there was a few, I have specific cities just to mention, if you know your geography in China, large migrations came from places in the north, like Hunan, Hubei, North Jiangsu, and they all went to what is lower than the Yangtze regions, such as Anhui, Zhejiang, and South Jiangsu. And these are areas, as you know, that were hit by the Taipings, because those are actually some of the major battles. Anhui is one that I spoke of quite often, because that was a big one. Yeah, but to get to, back to what Craig was saying about Malthusianism, which, yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, basically, if any of you are Marvel fans... And you know the idea of Thanos. This is very, very much what he talked about. It's a, it's a silly parallel, but it, it makes a lot of sense. Which is where a population will grow exponentially, but the amount of food and resources coming out of that country grows linearly. So uh, I don't know if Craig might be able to put up a graph in this episode uh, like to, to give an idea. So basically, your population is going up very, very steeply. But the amount of food and resources is going curve. And as that population curve pulls away from the resources, that's where you get more and more starvation, more famine. Uh, again, less exports, less production for your country, especially if they have to start consuming more, means they can sell less. Uh, so that's going back to what we said in the beginning, where the country was really starting to bleed dry of resources. High, high inflation. Because of that population growth. Which, it sounds silly, but again, going back to the Marvel movies, that whole theory of <laughs> snap your fingers and half the population dies. It's not something that would ever work practically, but the idea is there, that you need to try and stunt that population growth. Um, which, oddly enough, is one of the reasons why the Taipings were trying to ban prostitution and all of these things, is to stop 
too many errant children from running around for free type of thing. And might I just add, and this is extremely important to my channel, that the original comic series in which Thanos has a plan has nothing to do with killing half the population of the universe. Thanos was killing people to impress his mistress, which was death herself. And that's why he went on a universe conquest to destroy worlds. I have to say that as a comic book nerd. We're not going to get into Marvel theory now. I just wanted to throw that in there as a parallel for those of you who have seen that type of thing. I just realized that we've spoken about the Taiping Rebellion without talking about the biggest thing that's probably the most important thing to take from this for Westerners. How many people died during the Taiping Rebellion? Because I say it, I think, three times and I emphasize in the episode, but as a Westerner, think about this. The Taiping Rebellion was the bloodiest conflict in human history until World War II, depending on which source you take, because it is fighting against some other ones, because, you know, I say 20 to 30 million, that's a conservative estimate, but they go up to 70 million. There's people in China right now that are arguing 70 million, and that's bullshit, but, you know, maybe 40. So, really, like, take, a, take that into consideration. That many people died in a civil war. This is inside of China. Can you imagine the absolute turmoil? It, it, it completely, it, does, it changed China forever. I mean, China never recovered from this. And the reason why China fell into communism is obviously from this, because Mao Zedong and Sun Yat-sen are the ones, you know, who, who, who took note of the Taiping Rebellion, what worked, what didn't work, and they formed their own revolutions. Mind you, Sun Yat-sen wasn't, I don't think, a full-on communist, but uh, yeah. Well, what's difficult about the Taiping Rebellion, too, is that being as it's an internal thing, vast majority of the deaths were Chinese. Yes, there were some Westerners involved, but, you know, if you conservatively say 20 to 30 million deaths, maybe, maybe 3, 4 million of that would have been outsiders. Whereas the rest are all Chinese nationals. And uh, what do you consider Chinese? Because if you were speaking to people at the time, the Manchus would not think the Han Chinese were the same. And I mean, you, you actually have to say Han Chinese. You don't say Manchu Chinese. There, there's a reason for that. And, I, and that's, a, that's, a, anyways, that's a whole sticky thing in China. You know, and when you're talking, talking about a population growth from 130 to 400 something million. It's crazy. You're talking almost ten percent of the population in death, or let's 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 be conservative and say five percent. Five percent of a population is a lot to lose. Yeah. In in the span of whatever amount of years you want to say. Hate to bring it up, but if you're talking to an American, the biggest tragedy is not World War Two. It was the Civil War because it was Amer it was brother against brother, American versus American. The Civil War is a tragedy because American blood was spilt only. Well, actually, there. Mexican stuff else. there was other people involved but anyways yep. think of that times a million because like 30 million people and you know that's the estimates just for the war um if you want to argue you know the ramifications in the later years because of course the famine doesn't just clean itself like uh the financial debt in our country under Trudeau right now it doesn't just clean itself nope it uh it keeps going and, uh, you know, another thing we didn't mention, and would be remiss if we didn't, because it's always about opium, the opium trade and the status of it during this time period, because I have a finally a chart in front of me just to talk about how much did opium go up during this one, because remember our last episodes, the first opium war, second opium war, and now the Taiping Rebellion. So if we're looking at the Taiping Rebellion, let's take a point 
1863, so just at the end of the Taiping Rebellion, we're hitting 4,003, oh my god, 4,232, was it chests or tons? Tons of opium coming into China at this point, and that's going to go to about almost 5,000 by 1867, and then it's going to go to 6.5 thousand by 1880. And uh, let's remember, this all picked up around 1835 with 1.4 thousand. So opium is skyrocketing because there's no way to stop it. It's basically it. tripled in 30 years. There's no way to stop it. It actually only gets stopped officially by Mao Zedong in, I don't want to say 1850 because I've been early, maybe 1852 or something. I have to look at the number, but by, eight, by 1915, opium was really getting stamped out. Like people weren't completely destroying society in China anymore but uh, the lasting effects of the opium wars are it's unquestionable it, it destroyed China it did so much harm and there's a reason why harsh feelings are still felt today and there's a reason why China calls this the 100 years of humiliation uh, as for certain yeah okay. yeah so all that two wars a rebellion all very massively fought to abolish opium, and at the end of the day, it's stronger by the end of it. That's ironic, eh? You think about it. There's a first war to stop the opium trade. It fails, and opium starts to get bigger. There's a second war to stop opium. It fails worse than the first time, and opium starts to come in faster. And simultaneously, there is an inner civil war that tries to stop the opium trade, <laughs> gets stopped and then the opium just floods in more i mean uh we'll, we'll get to the boxer rebellion that'll be another one we'll talk about the opium trade during then because it'll still be going on but uh, that's a whole other beast of its own oh god it's actually really depressing <laughs> yeah well the truth is is that that's just westerners being opportunistic yeah again was i i suppose you could call it a necessity for them at the time but Again, fighting against a country who's so fractured, so divided, is fighting on several different fronts at once, not only internally, but against foreigners. But this we, was the period where that happened. One thing that's really particularly important about the Taiping Rebellion is just before the Taiping started this, yes, China has never been very centralized, but it was quite centralized. And they were, the British and the French were fighting a Qing force, and it, 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 you could argue it was a centralized national force. The Taipings completely kicked the door in and decentralized everything from this point on. China was not centralized after this. Yeah. And that opened the door to so many different influences coming in. I mean, we haven't talked so much about China and Japan yet. There's going to be a lot of that going on. This is what opens the door, by the way. Um, the, I mentioned the Boxer Rebellion. The main grievance from the Boxer Rebellion is, yes... Westerners were cutting the pie of China open, and Germany w will be added to the list of world powers. But the big one that angers Chinese people even to today is Japan uh, decided to get its fingers in. And uh, this will lead to the first Sino-Japanese uh, War, which is the real huge grievance because it was an actual war between the two. But um, because of the Second Opium War and the Taiping Rebellion, the Qing Dynasty became... Uh, the laughing stock of Asia, and they were so weakened and pathetic that everybody came in and formed these embassies where they were just 
you know, doing unequal trades with China and abusing them. And Japan was one of them. And China particularly saw this as a disgusting act because if you know your history between China and Japan, China was big brother, Japan was little brother for most of history. And then eventually this is where it changed. And they go to war many times and horrible things happen. Hmm. That is the Pacific War. Well, hopefully we'll get into some of that in the next episodes. Oh, uh, the next episode is going to be uh, a bit dry. Um, I know some of these episodes... the first four weren't. Yeah, yeah um, I'm going to be getting to a lot of... Uh, there's going to be a point where it's all going to be wars and uh, exciting events. But the next episode is going to be on the many attempts to open up Japan. Because I would... I, I honestly, for the life of me, while designing this channel, I couldn't just do what everyone wants to hear like uh the boshin war like you know the last samurai the satsuma rebellion that's actually close to the last samurai mind you i i can't talk about all the cool things without giving the backgrounds like you want to hear about how all of a sudden japan went from you know a samurai feudal system and then there was like <laughs> the military that we knew of it in the world war ii i have to talk the magi restoration and it's a bit of a boring piece because it's not as exciting with the wars and that but uh you know economics is important too Political change is important too. Change in art during the Magi Restoration is super important. And well, at yeah. the end of the day, these things are all linked and they all kind of tie into the same big pie, which is why, or Craig, I should say, has dedicated an entire channel to this because it's such a complex era that, uh, you know, we, we got a lot of stuff to cover. But I can promise you guys from my end, the next episodes are going to be a little shorter, so we're oh, uh, God, we're yeah. going to be able to cut those down a little bit. The next they're episode going to be easier to swallow. So uh, I'm pretty sure last time I checked, the next episode was like 25, 30 minutes, which is a little bit less than this one, and then the one after that's like twenty five minutes. So it's going to get a little less painful. And I know it's uh, you don't see that every day on YouTube, like these full documentary types. But uh, I mean, I'm I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I. I summarize as much as I can, but I don't try and cut it into 11-minute segments. Just for that moolah, I'm not going to name any names in the History Channels because I love all of my history brothers on YouTube and hope that I can brush shoulders with them one day. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know what? we got like five minutes here. I'm just going to say Alternate History Hub, probably one of the best history channels on YouTube right now. I think anyone who watches history videos on YouTube would argue the same great twitter handle and i love his pseudo politics on twitter mind you um armchair historian is kind of the forefront grandfather for all of us since he made his own uh, group on youtube where he's getting all the historians together and i hope to brush shoulders with him one day um my friend history clarified who i did a collaboration video with unbelievable guy really unbelievable so smart if anyone has a chance, you can check out, I did a podcast with him. There's no script. There's no information. It went on almost for two hours. And his knowledge of the Eastern Front during World War II is, is incredible. I mean, we talked about the Winter War, particularly between Finland and Russia. It was awesome. And, uh, oh my God. Uh, well, after this episode, we're going to be in Japan for a while. Say that. It's going to be a little bit better because uh, uh, I probably said it a few times, I am not a scholar when it comes to Chinese history. Very strong in Japanese history. And we're going to get into the nitty gritty stuff, as I like to call it, because I happen to have read a lot more recent contemporary knowledge on Hirohito's, what would you say, um, his involvement 
in a lot of the actions before World War II and during World War II because a lot of information was hidden from the public for a long time. Uh, a lot of people like to think that Hirohito didn't have much involvement in a lot of the policy changes that were bad, but he did. So this ep I'm going to say right now, my channel is not going to sugarcoat anything. I'm really going to go into some deep and uncomfortable subjects. Uh, sorry for any of my Japanese audience. This is nothing against you or your people or your country. But uh, I'm going to talk about the reality behind a lot of things. And uh, if you've seen my episode on United States Marine atrocities on the Japanese during World War II, you'll know that I won't sugarcoat it for the Allies or Americans either. I'm going to say it as it is. And I've gotten a lot of flack for that one. Even recently, I've had more comments about things I said there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll definitely see where that goes going forward. I'm interested to get a little more into the Japanese side, where I know you're kind of specialized. And we'll see, uh, like you said, it's it's always interested to see that big brother, little brother relationship that Japan and China had, at least back then. Yeah, because it changes right at this point in history. And to see how that power dynamic changes and where it goes from there. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. Like, think of it this way. We're Canadians. Um, America is always big brother. Um, if one day Big Brother just got crippled by a bunch of other nations and we were in a position where we could be Big Brother, what would we do? Awkward conversation there. A lot of American viewers are probably like, shut the, up the, right the, now. The, the, this is a very sensitive time to be talking about those subjects. Yeah. A lot of things going on in America it, right now. Yeah, finish it off with saying that America had a contingency plan just before World War II to invade Canada if we became a threat. So we... we we're watching you, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyways, anyways, we yeah. got moose. They don't. So. Yeah. And we have maple syrup. Moose or meese? I don't know. Still haven't figured that one out. Gooses or meeses? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, anyways, this has gone off the rocker. This has been the Pacific War Channel. <laughs> what happens when you drink beer and shoot YouTube videos, people? That's the only way to do it. That's correct. Pacific War Channel over and out. <laughs>